if you could please open up to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, everybody. John chapter 20. It's good to be in the Word. If you're at home, uh, grab your Bibles. We want to make sure that we're uh, students of the Word, not just uh, hearers, but doers. And so we want to underline and apply and, and live these things out and let it shape our thinking. In John chapter 20, I'm just going to read verses 19 and 20, which we did go over last week, but we're going to go through the end of the chapter this morning. But John 19, uh, John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. It says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You know, the first half of, of chapter 20, up until about verse 19 or so, uh, well, actually a little past that, basically, is it's Resurrection Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It is a Sunday. Uh, verse 1 and verse 19 tells us that it's a Sunday morning. In the first part of chapter 20, John tells us that Mary Magdalene, she wakes up really early. She goes to the tomb because the Sabbath was the day before. She gets there. It is empty. She's overwhelmed, thinking the worst might have happened. She runs back to tell uh, Peter and John, and they have a foot race to the tomb. It was there that John tells us that he sees the grave clothes, which shouldn't be there. Basically, if someone gets uh, robbed uh, from there, you don't unwrap everything and put it nicely there. Uh, the grave clothes were there. The face covering was folded nicely. And it says there that he was, he says there that it was there that he first believed. It was connecting for John. And it takes, and John takes the rest of the chapter to point out that his testimony of the resurrection of Jesus, as well as the other apostles, was not contrived. It was not contrived. Each of them doubted the resurrection heavily, even though they had been told by Jesus over and over, even though the scriptures had proclaimed it over and over, they were doubted until the Lord had to convince them. And he convinced them in an amazing way. And so starting in verse 19, it's still that resurrection Sunday, but it is the evening. It's evening time. And John describes for us that first appearance of Jesus to his disciples. He appears to them. And, uh, and they were all still in Jerusalem. They were behind locked doors at this point. And so Jesus appears to the disciples we went over this last week, uh, who were in total shock, even from the reports that had been coming in. Remember, oh, the women had come and shared with the contingency of the disciples. You had the two other disciples who weren't of the 11 uh, main disciples that were on the road to Emmaus. They had seen Jesus. They came back and told them. Uh, apparently, Peter had, a, had, had Jesus appeared to Peter uh, during that time between the morning and the evening. And so all of these disciples are gathered together. They are believing now in some form that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so Jesus has to appear to them. He appears to them behind locked doors. Obviously, they are shocked beyond belief. They, they are, I mean, you guys figure it out. You're behind locked doors and all of a sudden Jesus appears and you're just freaking out, right? And so he has to show them. He has to convince them that it's really happening, even though he's, they're looking at him. And he goes, look, look at my nails, the nails in my hands. Look at my side. He shows them the nails in his side. And the other gospels tell us that um, they kind of fill in the gaps there, that, that they, they were just in utter disbelief. They were just freaked out. And, and they were thinking they were seeing a ghost. And Jesus goes, listen, there's a, there's a ghost that flesh and blood touched me. And he goes, here, give, give me some food. And so eat some honeycomb and some fish. And he just spends time convincing them 
in the room with them. This is real. And they are just in an utter just astonishment. And it says there, um, John simply tells us that as Jesus enters the room, basically, and appears to them, um, he says, peace be with you. <laughs> so he appears and says, I, you know, peace be with you. And then verse 20 says, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples, it says, were glad when they saw the Lord. John leaves a lot of the details about, about the fish and the scared and all the stuff. It just, he just says they were glad that they saw the Lord. Now that word glad, it's not like, hey, how are you? You know, are you, are you happy? I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to see you, Lord. No, it's exceedingly gladly, you know, just over, <laughs> overflowing with gladness is the idea. They were just marveling with delight. That is that they, when they saw and they believed that it was indeed the Lord. Could you imagine that? Their greatest sorrow turned to joy right before their very eyes. The one they had given up their lives for to follow, the one they loved so much, had been so much through, watched him, um, not understanding the full implications of what he was going to do, his purpose, his meaning. He called them out. They followed. They, they gave up their lives, followed him. And here he dies in such a horrible way. And they're just heartbroken, overcome with grief, the Gospels tell us as they're in that room. Fear of dying because of the Jews. And Jesus appears and he says, peace be with you. And he convinces their hearts over and over and over that he is risen. What grace was given to them. Not only does he enter the room with peace be with you, and he convinces them and they were glad, but then he says again, peace be with you. He just sandwiches everything with peace. You know, what grace, how tender and loving and kind the Lord Jesus was in their doubt. How faithful he was to bring them from fear to faith, from doubting to a total conviction to where they would, each of them would give up their own lives except John. In following him, he reassured them of the peace that they had with God. And you can imagine, I, that's one thing I would want to know. Someone just mysteriously appears in the room. Do I have peace with this person or not? And Jesus says, here I am, King of kings, Lord of lords, risen from the dead, and we have peace with each other. You know, and as a church, we know from scripture that that peace extends to us wasn't just for the apostles. It extends to us who have believed their account, who have come to Jesus Christ. We know that that peace is now ours. And this is why Paul often states, as he starts with his, his, his epistles, have any of you read his letters and you read that he starts with grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ or from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? He just he always starts with that because I think he just himself was marveled at the peace extended to him from God. Obviously, you can't have the peace of God without the grace of God first. The grace of God came into his heart and he had peace with God through Jesus Christ. And he writes all those letters that start out with grace and peace. Grace and peace. And so that's the Lord's words to his church is grace and peace. How sweet is that? You know, the world around us does not have that peace, although God desires to extend it, um, and he has. But that's really what the, the good news results in, is that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's interesting on that resurrection morning when the angel who is like lightning descended. Remember in, in some of the other gospels, it, it talks about the, the angel, I think it was Matthew, he, he descended from, the, from heaven, okay? The, the guards are all hanging around the tomb, right? The Roman guards who had to be there to watch everything. 
And the, the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord, descends like lightning, slams into the ground, basically, moves the stone and sits on top of it. And, it, and they just all freak out. Yes, Matthew 28, where he says, it says that they trembled for fear and became as dead men. That's what happened. And they ran away. But the very next verse in Matthew 28, 5, it says, but the angel said to the women who came, who came uh, soon after, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. They, the world does not have the peace of God. They have a reason to fear. But we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared in that room and he said to those believers, peace be with you. And we have that unshakable peace because it's not a peace based on circumstances of our own. It's peace based upon a peace that God has sovereignly given us through Jesus Christ. It's unshakable. You have an unshakable peace with God. Amen? Now, we might fall into sin and we have a disruption in our heart. That's different. But as far as our relationship with God, that's set through Jesus Christ. But the, to the degree to which we enjoy that relationship, that's based upon obedience, I would say. Kind of like our kids in us. Amen? There are kids, we love them, nothing's going to change, but the degree that we have joy with one another is the degree that which there's obedience and love and respect. Amen? But if, you, if you've been on the planet Earth any time lately, um, or I, and this just extends for all time, but basically you've seen that this world is experiencing anything but peace. We are not at peace. We are not at peace in our hearts with one another. And we are not at peace, ultimately, with God. There's a total lack of true and lasting peace. Actually, we know in Revelation that there's going to be a declaration of peace on the world. When they say peace and safety, look out. There's going to be a false peace eventually. But the world is constantly seeking peace, but they're not seeking the means that God has given for that true and lasting peace. Jesus' plans for peace is not to validate our identity in our own specialized groups. It's not to do that, to validate you and your skin tone and your people group and who you are and all this stuff. It is actually to do the opposite of that, is to strip you of that and to make you a new man, a new woman, a new person, a new people, a new tribe under one king, one spirit, one Lord, one God, one Father. It's interesting that Paul in Ephesians 2, after describing what the human race is like from God's perspective, he says, basically, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, walking in the ways of the world, under the influence of Satan, by nature, children of wrath. That's God's perspective of, of us. In trouble, in trouble with one another, and basically alienated from him. Paul says to the spiritually dead, he says, he says, to the Ephesians there who were believers said you were dead but basically by the grace of God he made you alive in Christ Jesus he made you alive and then he goes on to describe what that new life as a result of peace with God is like what what do you what does it look like he goes on to describe to these non-Jews these Ephesians these Gentiles what their new life is like, their new identity is like. He says to the Gentiles, starting in verse 11, Ephesians 2, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, 
called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. You're called the uncircumcision by the Jews, right? Racial names given by physical distinctions, nothing new. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Jews were the ones who had the truth. And Gentiles were alienated from that truth. But verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. He is our peace who has made us both one. Some unity going on there. He has brought peace. Why? By making us both one. The Jew and the Gentile and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to unpack all this right now. But the idea is that Jesus Christ brings true peace to any person who comes to him by faith. Peace with God and peace with one another, peace with believers. Because when you come to Christ, you become a new person in Christ. You become a new man, a new woman. You are a new people. And it isn't based upon your skin tone. It's based upon who's on the throne. A new people. And Paul goes on. just want to read it because it's awesome. Verse 17, Ephesians 2. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to peace to those who were near to the Jew and to the Gentile. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, common Father, common spirit. And so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by God the Spirit. Paul's describing the church. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, one Father, one Spirit, one house, one Lord, who dwells in us all. Amen? Jesus Christ is the answer to this world's woes because he takes people and their sinfulness and he makes them one in him. And those of you who have had Christ in your heart and have had things, you know, whatever it might be that you grew up with or ways of looking at things, when you come to Christ, he, he begins to change you. And you have a love for people you've never had before. And when you don't, he convicts you on it. <laughs> and he's working on you until you change. Amen? Jesus Christ comes and brings peace to those who believe in him. Church, allow the Lord to transform your thinking in this. No longer thinking as this world and the politicians and, and your political background and persuasions are telling you to think. 
begin to, to change your identity according to what he says you are, not what they say you are. He's done an amazing work, and it is an incredible gift. Read it, embrace it, learn it, ask questions, conform to him. No longer let this earthly world define who you are and what group you belong to. You have been bought with a price. You have been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. You are not your own. It is now Christ who lives in you. Amen? Doesn't that strike at the pride of humanity? Oh, yeah, me too. Believers have true peace with God and one another through Jesus Christ. The world does not know this peace. Believers do. So let's live it and preach it. Amen? Amen? Amen at home? All right. And so Jesus says to the 11 minus Thomas, peace be with you. I kind of went on a peace trip there. Probably a little bit out of context, but I thought it was fitting. But he says to the live 11 minus Thomas, Thomas isn't there that Sunday night. He says, peace be with you as he comforts them. And then right away, that peace, that peace um, comes with a call. It's resurrection morning. He appears to the ones he called out for this purpose. He says, peace to you, I'm risen. And then in verse 21, he says, right away, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, even though I am sending you. And so they were to continue the mission of Jesus Christ in the sense that they were sent to proclaim eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. They were not, you know, they they weren't, uh, you know, God on earth redeeming people, but they were part of the ministry of reconciliation. They were to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's peace with God, the forgiveness of sins, that they were to seek the lost. They were to be ministers of the reconciliation between God and man, that they were to proclaim that people could be saved from the penalty of their sins, that they could have eternal life through faith in Jesus. That is what they were called to do. They were to continue. He is sending them into the world. And the Father and the Son, they chose these men who were now witnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection. You and I were not witnesses to his life, his death, and resurrection in the sense that we were not eyewitnesses of any of that. We believe their account. They were there. And this is John's whole point. He wants you to know that belief was not willy-nilly. It wasn't like they just said, oh yeah, let's, let's do that. They had to be convinced of it, as any of you would. And that is why John is writing, so that we would know without a doubt, that those listening would know without a doubt, that Jesus is not some fictitious person. He really came, he really lived, he really died, he really did all the miracles he did, he did fulfill all those prophecies. There were people who saw it, and they lost their lives proclaiming it. It's true. And so these men were chosen by God, and were now witnesses to his life and death and resurrection. And they were given authority to go do so. And that's really what the the word apostle means. It means sent. I'm sending you. There's two words for sent there, but Jesus says, I was sent by the Father, but now I'm sending you. Jesus is the true apostle, the true one who's sent. And we are little um, representations of that, or they, they were. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of people go around saying, I'm an apostle. 
No, you're not. It's very clear. They, the, when, when Jesus died, you, you read later in Acts, and, and they, Judas had, had hung himself, and they were replacing Judas. They pretty much lay out the criteria for being an apostle, as they chose straws, and Matthias was one. It's someone who had been with Jesus the whole time. They, they, were, they saw his ministry. They witnessed his, his death. They witnessed his resurrection. Had to be one of those people to be an apostle. And they obviously had to be chosen by God. So a lot of people go around said that they are apostles, and I've got apostolic authority, and they've got all this kind of, you know, and, and they slap people with towels, and all of a sudden you're, you're slain in the spirit and all this stuff. Just, just stay away from all that. No, these guys were the apostles. The original deal. In the truest sense, they were given authority by Jesus over the demonic. Remember, he set them apart. He came to them. He laid hands on, or he prayed for them, and they received what? power over demons and to heal the sick, and he sent them out two by two, and they did those things. They were given authority by Jesus to go on his behalf, and soon they were be, would be empowered with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses, and they were the ones who were called into cities to lay hands on people, and you can see that pattern all the way through Acts. does not mean that we are shortchanged as believers. They had a special calling within the church. They were the apostles of Jesus Christ, the witnesses. You and I aren't writing scripture. If you are, come talk to me after church, please, for the service. We're not writing scripture. We don't have apostolic authority. Amen? You don't. They did. That's the point. And so Jesus calls the apostles to be and to do what he called them to, and he empowers them to do it. He would empower them on, in Acts chapter 2 to do what he called them to do as the Holy Spirit came. And so Jesus says, here, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, verse 22, <clears throat> and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold, the sin, uh, you withhold forgiveness from any, it is forgiven. Or it's, with, it's, sorry, it's withheld. Sorry, I'm thinking ahead while I'm reading. Jesus empowers and he authorizes these men to be his authoritative representatives in proclaiming the gospel. That's what's going on here. Listen, while we too, we can testify to people who believe upon Jesus or reject people that according uh, to the scripture that their sins are forgiven or not, we, we, can, we can do that. We know that, but it's not our authority. It's, it's the Lord's authority. And same, I believe, here with the apostles. But they were the ones who were chosen. They were the eyewitnesses. They were the ones who were the authoritative. Listen, this is the gospel. Your sins are forgiven according to your faith in Jesus Christ. Yours are not because you have rejected Jesus Christ. It's not like you went to, you know, Matt over here on the side and asked, you know, hey, is, that, is this good? No, you went to the guys who were there, right? And they were the ones who were to declare with absolute authority whether or not someone was truly forgiven. And we see this kind of rolled out through the, through the, uh, through the, through the book of Acts. You come, you come to situations where there's a sorcerer and he wants to buy stuff. And Peter tells him, listen, you're going to have trouble and you are in, you're going to be under the wrath of God if you do not repent. Pray that God would allow you to repent. And so Peter speaks authoritatively to them. says, listen, you're not in the right with God. Get right. And they did. Others walked into the room and they did their deal. They lied 
of the apostles there and they drop dead. That's not like, you know, you learn that in seminary. This is Jesus with these men having, I think, beyond normal abilities. They were gifted for a specific season in the church. And they were empowered to be eyewitnesses and to have the authority to proclaim and to declare the effects of the gospel upon people. They had authority. And we see that in their messages as they proclaimed the gospel. They called people to repentance. So we need to keep that straight. Now, this is really a tricky passage. You know, what does it mean that he breathed on them and received the Spirit? <clears throat> right? Uh, what Jesus is talking about, what is Jesus talking about when he says that they, they, they forgive sins? Is it their, their alone power? So people take this, is it their inherent power to forgive sins? Or is it kind of representative authority to give, forgive sins? This is important stuff because this, this takes us down weird, weird paths in the church. But there's several interpretations the scholars have here. But one is, is that they were actually born again here when they received the Spirit and that they were subsequently empowered to be witnesses in Acts chapter 2. And that power to forgive sins is just simply declaring that they're forgiven according to what God says. And so there's an idea that they're being born again here. They're receiving the Spirit and that Acts 2 is, a, is, is more of an empower, empowering. There are brothers and sisters in the Lord who, who hold to that and believe that. And, you know, I, I can't fight one way or the other on that. Another is that it's symbolic. All this is symbolic. Uh, uh, that all this is foreshadowing. Uh, that Jesus is breathes upon them is a symbolic gesture of the Spirit that they would receive in just a little while in Acts 2, within a couple weeks there, um, that they would have the power to forgive was not their own power, but to basically declare what God had already commanded. And that's generally the safest interpretation there. Um, and so, but the, the, the idea there is, the point that John's pointing out is that the risen Jesus appeared to the apostles he empowered them and authorized them to be witnesses of the gospel and to declare it, to declare sins were forgiven to all who believed and those who didn't weren't. That's, that's kind of the gist of it, okay? Uh, without getting deep into that, if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, let's, let's do that. Um, in verse 24, we've got, we've got the next issue, though. They're all there in the upper room. Jesus appears to them. He breathes on them, apparently has received the Spirit, and here's your kind of calling. I'm sending you into the world to proclaim the forgiveness of sins or the lack thereof. And here we go, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was apparently a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas decided not to go to church. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is, who is often referred to as, as doubting Thomas because of this, right? He is totally skeptical of the resurrection. You see John's thinking here? I'm going to show you guys, as you guys are listening to my account, that we were all doubters. Jesus had to convince us, and Thomas was the worst. He wasn't having it. And John is pointing this out because he wants us to know without a doubt 
that the resurrection is absolutely true. Jesus Christ, a real man, sent from God, the Son of God, lived, died, rose again. And just as he came the first time, he's coming the second time, church. And perhaps you know people like this. It's not a matter of understanding the scriptures. Remember John and Peter at the tomb had not yet understood the meaning of the scriptures. It's not a matter of that. It isn't a matter of rejecting the messengers like the disciples rejected the women when they came and told them, said, ah, that's, those, are wives, those are wives' tales. They'd eat crow later. It's more along the lines that unless they see it, they won't believe it. I believe in science. Totally, emphatically, no to believing anything about Jesus rising from the dead. It is impossible. Do you know anybody like that? Were you like that? <laughs> Thomas wasn't having it. Thomas apparently has company. But Thomas made a list of what had to happen in order for him to believe, and it was graphic. He heard. They said that Jesus showed him his wounds. He says, unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. Not only do I, it's not enough to see. I have to touch it. I have to experience it. I have to put my fingers in his hands, in the holes, and in his side. That's pretty sick. That's the, that's the kind of faith that he needed to have. Well, what happened? Thomas, verse 26, eight days later. Eight days later, what day is that? Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. Do you ever wonder why we meet on Sundays? It's because Jesus started it. What day was Jesus risen from the dead on? Sunday. What day did he meet with all of his disciples the first time? Sunday. A week later, when did he meet with his disciples? Sunday. When did Pentecost happen? Sunday. When did, where, when did Paul command, when all the churches got together, they would grab their undering on the first day of the week when you are gathered together on a what? On a Sunday. This is the new day that we meet as a, as a church under the new covenant to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, are we limited to meeting on a Sunday? The answer is no. <laughs> We're actually commanded to meet all time and hanging out. But as a tribe, as a group, as a family, as a team, so to speak, this is the day we meet. We set apart the first. We set apart the best for our Lord in worship. We meet the day that Jesus rose from the dead to worship him, to be together, to be edifying one another, to be living out the one another's in a big group, so to speak, to be connecting with one another, finding out how you're doing. The church meets on Sundays because this is when Jesus and his apostles and those after in church history, have met. And again, we're not limited to that day. They met all throughout as we read the book of Acts. They met every day, but they gathered together on Sundays. And so if you are healthy this morning and you are watching this in your PJs from home and you're under 65, it's time to come to church. Time to be with your people. Get off the couch, come home, obey Jesus Christ, and hang out with everybody. Now I understand we're living in precarious times. Put on your mask. There's plenty of room to spread out here. 
be around the people of God. He connected with them physically. There's plenty of room, like I said. And obviously, you've got to take precautions. I understand all that. But you know who you are. How many of you have been going, eh, it's just easier to stay home? Anybody? It, let me just, let me, I want to let you know it's easier to stay home for me too. And I can do that. It really is. But Hebrews 10, 24 through 26, which is being quoted a lot during these times because the church has found convenience superior to obedience. Why? We're letting culture, we're letting self dictate what we do as opposed to what God has commanded us to, right? I'm not getting mad at you. You're here, right? I'm not mad at you. I'm just saying, I want us to look at our own hearts and our own minds and saying, why are we gathered together a little bit? It says Hebrews 10, 24 through 26 says, let us consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Have you considered that? Is this our thought as a church? I want to consider how I can stir up you to love and good works. Is this in our thinking? It should be, right? Not neglecting to meet together. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is in the habit of some. See, people were habitually not meeting together. That's wrong. but rather encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, Paul lays that out for us, or the writer of Hebrews lays that out for us. Listen, our mindset should be, how can I get together with the body of Christ so that I might encourage them and, and be encouraged? How many of you have Zoom fatigue? Get over it. Obey the Lord. If that's the tool that's in front of you to meet with your brothers and sisters to encourage them, use what's in front of you. Those of you who have the freedom to be here, use that opportunity. Those of you who can meet with one another in a lawn chair at home or hang out and do whatever you guys want to do, according to your conviction, do that. But be thinking in your minds, how can I love the body of Christ, because we need each other now more than any time. You divide this thing up and it doesn't function. You get us autonomously living by ourselves and the flame goes out. There was a little saying that I thought was kind of interesting. Someone said it somewhere in a sermon. I can't remember exactly where. But a pastor was talking to a person who had really just kind of didn't prioritize being together with the body of Christ. And he was sitting with him around a fire and he, there were some coals there and he took the coals and he spread them apart and he was talking to him. Then after a while, those coals began to grow cold and they were, there was no longer a flame and they started to go out. And he said, do you see that? So that's what happens to us when we're not around each other, when we're not in each other's lives, when we're not loving one another, encouraging one another, when we're not sacrificially just laying down our lives for one another as Jesus did for us. And then he takes them, he stirs them back together, and soon the flame starts to come up again. 
and the heat starts to go. See, we need each other, church. Some of us are in the habit of neglecting the body, but so many of you have persevered through this, and I just want to encourage you that you are such a blessing to the body of Christ. You are such a blessing to me and to those. Being online, meeting places, doing things. Listen, I know you're busy and you're fatigued. We all are. But the fact that you spend time out of your day to reach and love and edify, I am so encouraged by that when I see that, when I hear that, when I watch that. But I am also deeply concerned when we are isolating and separating, and it's for reasons that really, really aren't, you know, it's not, you know, for people who, you know, aren't like going, if I get this, I'm going to die. That's a reasonable understanding, right? I mean, that's, right? But below that, get together, spread out, and just edify one another, or Zoom with one another, or phone call one another, right? Ideas were in each other's lives. You guys know this. You guys at home, come on now, right? But the writer of Hebrews says it needs to be the opposite, all the more considering one another, all the more, church. Responsibly, of course, all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of the Lord's return, the day of judgment. All the more. That's the direction we need to be going, church. All the more, not all the less. Let the Lord work with you on that. So just apparently we meet on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m., for those of you who don't know, right? (laughs) And we also have opportunities throughout the week to edify one another, but don't let those programmed things um, limit you either. Pray and let the Lord lead you to be in each other's life as the Spirit leads. Thomas wasn't there uh, when Jesus came for the first week, but the Lord would remedy this. It was pretty cool. Verse 26, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them again, what? Peace be with you. Awesome. Again, Jesus greets them in peace. And then he said to Thomas, I love this. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I believe in science. There you go. Believe. You see, the resurrection was not something these men were going to believe on their own. Jesus had to convince them as he has to has had to do with every single one of us. It is him who brings us to trust in him and believe. And here Jesus takes the strongest of doubters and he brings them to faith. And Thomas would not believe unless he had evidence. And Jesus said, here you go. Don't believe, but don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas was a changed man. And what did he declare in verse 28? The most powerful statement. I believe in the New Testament in the declaration of who Jesus is. An exclamation on John's gospel that we might believe. He says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. You are Lord and you are God. Jesus Christ, the risen one. My Lord and my God. And it was the strongest doubter who puts the strongest exclamation point on John's gospel. He believed. And then Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? But blessed are those, blessed are those who have what? Who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us, church. Amen? That's us. The days are over of Jesus appearing walking the earth. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now there's special blessing for those who believe, although they have never seen Jesus. 
Again, we don't believe in a fairy tale. We believe in truth. We believe in the testimony of these men. Peter, who was an eyewitness, writing to people who most likely did not see him, see Jesus, wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. See, it's a, it's a faith that continues and overflows with joy. I can't wait to see the Lord. How about you guys? How many of you guys are just about done with all this? Come, Lord Jesus, set it straight, make it right. You alone have the wisdom to, to navigate through all this minutia. It's above my pay grade. Lord Jesus, work in my heart. Lord, work in the church. Lord, work in, he's going to come and he's going to touch down after that day, after the day that we don't want to know about. I mean, it's just a bad season there for the earth, but he's going to touch down and he is going to set things straight. And it will be so right and so good for a thousand years or about a thousand years, I believe, that kids can play in cobra's nests, cobra's dens. That's how right and good it's going to be, guys. Rod of iron, justice will flow. Lord Jesus, do it in my heart first. Blessed are you who have not seen and yet believe. And John ends this main part of his gospel. We're ending here. Desiring that all through the miracles he described, all through the prophecies he just described and fulfilled, all through the eyewitness testimonies that like him, we would believe. And John finishes the chapter in verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. John handpicked everything he wrote, every wrote, wrote in there, all the accounts that he wanted to remember because he was painting a picture systematically of how we believe in Christ, from the miracles, from the prophecies fulfilled, to his resurrection, to them doubting, to them coming to faith, because he made it so that they would, un, they would totally believe. And John says, listen, I could, there's more, but this is the, the small thing I'm giving you, and I'm praying that you would have eternal life. And so, let's pray, and then next week we'll enter the final chapter of John 21. Some great things there. And then at the end of John 21, John says, I suppose that all the, there, there aren't enough books in the world to fulfill all that Jesus did. <laughs> so be thankful there's 21 chapters. Amen. <laughs> Lord Jesus, risen. We just worship you. Father, how awesome you are to send such a gracious salvation to us who are walking in darkness, dead in sin, enemies of you, by nature, children of wrath, just following and blind and lost. And you came down and loved us with an, an eternal love. You thoroughly wiped out the penalty of our sins on the cross. You rose again to give us eternal life and you are alive and you reign and you rule. And we ask, Lord, that, that your, your new life in us would grow more and more, that the outward man would definitely be perishing, but the inward man would be ruining, uh, re renewed day by day, that you would well up within us and there would be fruit within our lives as we are changed from the inside out. 
And so, Lord, we command that our own hearts would just be submitted to you in this moment, in this time. Forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our arrogance before you, before the people we live with. Help us to walk humbly in light of the grace you've given us and to extend mercy in the gospel the way that you've given it to us, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to follow you this day. Help us to see ourselves in the new light of the new creation. And if anyone is, who's listening to this has never heard the gospel, Jesus Christ came from God, died on a cross for your sins to take the wrath of God upon you, and he rose again to give you new life. If you repent and you believe, your sins will be forgiven and you will be given eternal life, not because of me, but because of what he said and what he declared what he did. Right now, repent, believe. Repent means can, can call God, tell God exactly how it is, how you've wronged, and turn from that and turn towards him in faith, saving faith. That is the gospel. It's a free gift. Cost him everything to give you everything. And so, Lord, we depart here asking that many more would come to know you through this body of believers. And that we would come together, working together like a body really truly does. That when one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. That we would use our various giftings that you've given us virtually or whatever it might be to edify one another and build one another up. That we would function not in not walking around lame and, and broken, Lord, but whole and fit for the in, in, in submission and obedience to our head, which is you, Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, lead us on. We praise you. We love you. We give you this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you for the weather. In the name of Jesus, amen.